Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I am super excited to have with us Sean Caven. Sean is a para canoe kayak coach. He's the head coach for Australia and previously coached in the US for nine years. And prior to that, he actually was the head coach for British Canoeing. So welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thanks, Liz. Glad to be here. Oh, hopefully everyone can understand your Scottish accent. <laughs> well, if they, if they don't, you could put subtitles or something on it. or you know, you could, <laughs> I'll translate for you, you can, along you the way. You can translate as well on the way, yeah, that's for sure. Yep, yep. <laughs> Sean, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into coaching Paracanoe? Yeah, that's, that's a long story, but I'll keep it brief and short. I... Started coaching full time when the, the lottery uh, funding came on in the UK after the 1996 sort of disaster Olympics where GB only got one gold medal, I think. Mm-hmm. So then they started funding lottery. So I got an opportunity to be the national junior coach in the UK. And then I was actually then given the task of doing the senior team as well. That was up until 2008. And then I got an opportunity mm-hmm. to move to America to start a new program in Oklahoma City, which I did for 10 years. And, I, and at that point, I coached the first para-athlete I'd ever really been involved with, mm-hmm. which was a girl with a prosthetic leg came up to me and said, would you mind coaching me kayaking? And I've gone, uh, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, and I said, yeah, we can do that. As long as you turn up, show up, try the same as everybody else, then it's fine, and we'll figure out the rest of there. So that was how, how I got roped into para-canoeing. I was aware of it, but I'd never actually coached anybody directly until that point. And then um, mm-hmm. three years ago, I got an opportunity to move to Australia, 2019, and uh, moved to the Gold Coast, and I've been coaching the para-team here full-time since then. Awesome. And so can you tell us a little bit about the sport of para-canoe and how it might differ from able-bodied canoe kayak so for example what impairments are eligible to compete and what are the types of boats that are used in competition i'll start off with the easier stuff which is the um the boats that are used in competition are a kayak which is propelled by a double-bladed paddle and then mm-hmm. we have the outrigger which is called a va which is spelled v-a-a which is a traditional outrigger that was used probably in the Pacific Islands for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. A little bit more technical now, better built. But we have the VA, which is a single-blade canoe. So there's mm-hmm. the two boats. Everybody races in a single, and we race over 200 metres only at World Championship and Paralympic level. The main differences in terms of the difference between kayak and able-bodied and, and para-canoe are the, the VA is the only one where you kind of paddle sitting down in, mm-hmm. in a canoe because the able board kneel up and then yep. um, the kayak and the able boards is slightly thinner, therefore a little bit faster boat. It's probably 3% faster, the actual boat. But that's the mm-hmm. only difference, really. In terms of coaching and technical input, it's exactly the same. It's just that I make modifications depending on the individual athlete as to whether they can do a certain skill because of the, because of the impairment they may or may not have. So 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I make so, adjustments technically, depending yeah. on what physically the, the the person's able to do. Yeah. And so, what impairments are eligible to compete? Anybody that's got like it's mainly lower limb. If you want to be actually competitive, upper limb um, impairments can be. You can still paddle, but it's it's less likely you're going to be competitive at the the elite elite level. So you're looking at people with prosthetic prosthetic limbs, so they've got limb differences, and then there's there's a few people where you know medical conditions have been born with mm-hmm. that allow them to paddle. So we've got three different categories, which is um, KL, which is kayak, three, two, and one. So if the yeah. simple way that I think about it as a coach is that if you've got three parts that can move, you're in KL3. If you've got two parts that move, you're in KL2. And then one, you, which is generally arms, mm-hmm. then you're in KL1. Uh-huh. So it, it, okay. it goes three, two, one. So if you think about it, you've got two arms and a leg that might move, you're probably going to be a KL3. Yep. And then depending on where you're prosthetic or your your limb is so if you've got a knee joint and a lower leg but you maybe don't have a foot or an ankle you're going to be classified higher in terms of movability than somebody that's above the knee amputee maybe even as far up as your hip so you'd be Mm -hmm. classified as maybe a two in that case so it's a a little bit complicated to explain it's much easier when you see it in person yep do you have anyone with a spinal cord injury or does there's it a, tend a, to be limb deficiency? Yeah, no, there's a few people with spinal cord injuries and, and they tend to be a KL1 because mm-hmm. it limits their upper body and, and lower body movement. So, yeah, we do have spinal cord injuries. Unfortunately, we seem to collect people who are, you know, were able-bodied and then they had an accident. And mm-hmm. for some reason, it seems to be motorbikes. So, you know, if, if you... If you don't want to have an accident and end up in the public, don't don't ride a motorbike, because we do seem to, <laughs> we do seem to collect a few people that have had you know significant injuries following Not a motorbike accident. So yeah, yeah. It, seem, it seems to be a trend for us. I don't know about all the other sports, but it, it definitely is a trend for us. Uh-huh. And from a physiological perspective, in the able-bodied categories, they also compete over a thousand meters or five hundred meters, depending on the gender and. So for the physiological demands for the 200-metre event, roughly how long does it take to compete in that event and what are some of the key physiological advantages? Or um, the, the, boys, the boys race probably somewhere between 39 and 45 seconds, um, mm-hmm. depending on the, the, the disability and the class they're in. Um, so you've got a bit of a spread there, let's say between 30 and 39 seconds and... 50 seconds approximately and then mm-hmm. we've got the girls who run around um the fastest girls are about 46 seconds and the the kl1 girls do about 55 to 60 seconds so it's a short mm-hmm. sharp powerful explosive event so there's not a huge amount of endurance i would say required yep other than multiple reps on the same day require a little bit more repetition. Mm -hmm. And so what would a typical training week look like for your athletes? Um, A typical training week is we train on the water in the morning generally, and that's every day. 
apart from maybe a Thursday and a Sunday morning they get off, or Sunday's the whole day off. Mm-hmm. And then they're in the gym three times a week, typically Monday, Wednesday, Friday, just to give a little bit of um, recovery time in between. And then depending mm-hmm. on the time of year and the racing schedule, we'll maybe do a short, sharp, intense session on a Tuesday and a Thursday afternoon as well. So it's pretty much twice a day, at least five days a week. So, uh, I mean, in terms of nutrition and, and stuff, I mean, I actually tell my athletes to eat a healthy, balanced diet. It doesn't need to be too fancy as long as it's, you know, balanced between vegetables and protein and, and some fruit. And then the number one thing for me is, especially living in the Gold Coast, is to remain hydrated as, as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so being an outdoor sport and particularly training through the summer, then you're often in pretty warm conditions. So do you find that the heat becomes an issue sometimes? That Do they tend to overheat a little bit more than, say, some of your able-bodied athletes or do they actually tend to handle the heat pretty well? Yeah, it's, it's something that you might not think about when you when you start coaching you know, a para-athlete. If you just think about it, there's, there's significantly less skin if you've mm-hmm. got, let's say, two legs missing, you know, so heat transfer is then limited. So overheating is a bit of an issue, but we've had some limited success on heat chamber work that we've done beforehand, which we we deliberately overheat the athlete so that when they get to their mm-hmm. um, competition environment, it seems much less harsh to deal with straight away. So we, we train the athlete to, to sort of deal with that a little bit more, and that, that mm-hmm. does help. And and I think most of the help, provided you're hydrated, is psychological. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what's their competition schedule or frequency like? Is there a lot of uh, competitive events available to uh, para-kayakers? No, not specifically for para kayaking like the only that's the only people in the event we have three domestic events a year where they can compete against rivals or peers around the country and then we have two major international events a year so we'll have a world cup typically in europe and then the world championships Mm -hmm. and or the paralympics as the as the sort of major event of the year so we've really just got the two major events a year where we get multiple para entries from around the world so it's limited but and then the rest of the year we can race able-bodied athletes and domestic events and and we do some marathons which which are typically 10 to 15 kilometers long but you know it's it's racing and it's training so it to me it doesn't matter we just go and do it and and join in with able-bodied which is beneficial to everybody and in the training that you do do you include an endurance base even though it's a you know less than a minute event uh how proportionally important is it for them to have some a good endurance base in their training compared to just really working on that top end speed and power yeah we we, we still paddle we still paddle like 10k multiple effort um, on an interval session three four times a week so we're probably still mm-hmm. paddling 65 70k a week and total distance. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the intensity and the duration of each session is different. But yeah, there's, there's still an endurance component because if you're an athlete who does kayak and canoe, 
then you will you could potentially do six races in one day. So you still need to have mm. that endurance base, even if you are like one of our best athletes. Um, you may not need to go super hard in the heat um, to make it through to the final, but hopefully in the final you're going to go as hard as you can. So you have to do multiple efforts yep. at a, a high level through the day potentially. Yep. So that's why that's why there's still that endurance base in there. So is that, and I, and I think the other important thing is if you build that endurance base, I think your recovery post any kind of effort is significantly better than it would be otherwise. Mm. Yep. And speaking of recovery, the recovery nutrition side of things, you said that you know from a nutrition perspective, you encourage them to eat you know well balanced diet. How important do you feel that recovery post a training session is for them being able to sustain that training load and also go into that competition being able to recover? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's important to get something in there within 15, 20 minutes of finishing and, and remaining hydrated so they've always got a water bottle in the boat so that, you know, you're not trying to play catch-up once you finish your sessions, especially living in the Gold Coast where it does get warm in the summer and the humidity makes you sweat, obviously. So it's important to yeah. stay hydrated and then get some food in as quickly as possible, even if it's just a snack, driving driving home or, you know, during or after, just after your shower, etc. So that that's really mm-hmm. important to do that. And most of the athletes are pretty good at doing that. So I'm I'm fortunate that I, that I just coach three athletes on a daily basis. And then I'm obviously responsible for athletes around the country when they travel. But on a day-to-day basis, I, I coach three people. So it's pretty easy just to monitor and, and keep them on that. But obviously, there's an individual athlete responsibility to do that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be mm-hmm. sitting around telling them to eat now, but um, <laughs> they, they're they're pretty good yep. at that, and they know what they need to do in, in order to to do that. And they have regular consultations with a nutritionist that we've got available here on the Gold Coast, so they are fully aware of what they need to do that would be optimal, and um, it's up to them to try and keep mm-hmm. up with that as well. And and we, the coaches, yep. um, just give them gentle reminders here and there if. If something's not quite right, or somebody's low on energy, and you know, we um, we might have a chat with a nutritionist and see if there's anything else we can do in addition. And if we are mm-hmm. up in the load, it's just a case of monitoring that and making sure that people feel that they can eat. Obviously, weight is a is an important factor. Power to weight ratio is an important factor for us, but it's not as critical mm-hmm. um, as say a cyclist. Yep. Because you got the buoyancy of the water to kind of counteract that. We 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 got the buoyancy of the water, and then because it's a power-based event, we actually we mm-hmm. are actually trying to put on muscle weight in the gym, so that you you've got yep. that explosive power to get off the start in a race. Because if you don't, you're going to struggle to perform at the highest level. So that's where there's a there's a balance between muscle size and weight and then overall body mass in the boat um, and as long as you get that balance right then then it's okay but in order to maintain that balance then you obviously need to eat you know a healthy balanced diet and make sure you get enough protein in there to build muscle if if that's what we're trying to do with an individual athlete. Mm-hmm. And do you find that there's any other spe- outside of maintaining hydration and obviously fueling 
that that volume of training. Any specific nutrition challenges that you see your athletes face on a consistent basis, or do you feel as though it's the they're the two key ones? No, I think that's the two key ones. Other than that, it's it's individual things. So people choose mm-hmm. to eat like a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet. That's fine. They can do that as as long as they um, make up for that protein source from a different place. Then then it's not a problem. But yeah, there's some individual requirements, and then depending on whether it's a male or a female, then you might want to tweak things a little bit here and there just depending on what's going on but other than that we don't really stick to a specific rigid this is this is what you've got to eat to be a kayaker mm-hmm. cool awesome and so how does a potential kayaker get involved in the sport um there's a, there's a couple of ways you can obviously contact paddle australia and find out where your local club is because the main thing is that you find a club relatively close to where you live so that yep. you can if you if you get to that point, you can train multiple times a week relatively close to your house. The key thing there is there's a coach and, and the correct equipment, which we can obviously advise and help with. So if somebody did want to do that, either through Paralympics Australia or Paddle Australia, one of those two bodies there, they'll they'll direct you to the right people who can then help find somebody local that could potentially help somebody. Or... Mm-hmm. Some athletes do choose to to move to a location where they can actually train as well. So there's there's different ways depending. But if you just wanted to try it to see if it was something you were interested in and liked it, then finding your local canoe club through Paddle Australia would be the way to go. And would that be similar in the UK and the US? Yeah, definitely in the UK, that's that's the way to go, is, is try it through your local club. They've got a much bigger resourced part of canoe department so they're they're actively looking for people and have people who actively go out and look for people and that's their only job really is to get athletes into the sport Mm. and then the club system because it's a much smaller country geographically then um, driving for a couple hours to get to a canoe club to try it is a much easier concept than say here or the US where Mm -hmm. things are much more spread out yep and what about a coach? Like, as a coach, how can you get involved in coaching paracanoe if that's something that you're particularly interested in? Again, if it's something in? you're particularly interested in, which, having been through the coaching initiation, which was somebody just walking up to me and, and asking if they could be coached by me, <laughs> then if you wanted to go around in a more structured way, then contact Paralympics Australia. There's myself and Anna Wood that, coach part of canoeing right now in Australia and and we would be happy to help you but there's there's your local club they could help get the right people in the right contact and and then it, we're just looking for people that are willing to give it a try you don't need any specific skills mm-hmm. because there there is no specific skill there isn't a manual yet we're developing one but there isn't a manual yet for coaching part of canoeing and the I think the fear factor for a lot of coaches is that they suddenly have to start doing something completely different that they do with their able-bodied kids or adult mm-hmm. members, and that's not the case. Other than you might need right. to give somebody a little bit of help getting in and out of the boat, but once they're in the boat, then pretty much the training's exactly the same, and what you'll find is that your para-athletes can join in with your able-bodied athletes, and both both groups, if you like, 
benefit from that massively. You know, and then there's other spin-off mm. benefits. If if you're a club and you're looking to expand and improve your facilities, then if if you actively have a a para canoe section, then you're more likely to get council grants and and community-based foundations willing to invest money in your facility if if you have para athletes involved in your program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so obviously, you know, the access to the water is probably the critical component in terms of there being safe, accessible access to the water, especially if someone has a spinal cord injury. Yeah, and I mean, initially, you need a you need a, a, a sort of secluded, calm piece of water that's got a nice low dock that's easy, relatively easy to get in and out of. And um, mm-hmm. what we find is that the the issue with most dock is that if it's a spinal cord injury, they're generally in a wheelchair. So it's the ramp that's the key component there. So getting yeah. up and down the ramp at a decent angle so that they can do it themselves and be independent is, is really, really important. So it, it's not a game breaker, but it definitely makes it much easier if, if you can transfer from a dock to your boat rather than off a beach. Mm-hmm. But it is, it yep. is possible and yep. we have done it. It's just a bit of a logistical, it's a bit more of a logistical challenge rather than it's impossible. Sure. And the other key piece of advice I'd give to a new club or a new coach is literally just ask the athlete what they can comfortably do and what they feel comfortable doing. And then, you know, you would be surprised at how something that I might perceive as a big challenge, they do it no problem. So it, mm. it's, it's more yeah. asking the individual athlete what, what they feel comfortable with and then accommodating to that point. Yeah, that's a really, really important point. I remember in Chula Vista in California, the the there's a pretty steep drop down to the pontoon. And so I remember that they used to have to put out a, spe- a specific type of material on the on the ground to allow the wheelchairs to have access to, to yeah. get enough traction to yeah, come up and down there's, the, the there's ramp. Sand there, so that, that's, that's another issue. Yeah. But the, we we now have a number of surf clubs have got beach accessible carpet, etc. on the Gold Coast. So that mm-hmm. type of material, yeah, is, is now becoming more common. And it does allow a wheelchair to get yep. on the beach without having to modify the wheels, etc. So it's a really, it's a really, it's a really cool advantage. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Excellent. Well, You've done a great job at trying to explain the whole process. Any specific recommendations that you have for athletes who either want to compete in paracanoe or are already competing I in paracanoe? I think if you've, if you've never competed in it and you want to try it, then the first, the first thing is to try it and just find out how comfortable you are at, at pursuing that sport because it's not for everybody, but at the same time, you know, until you try it, you just don't know. And then the the big advantage that you could potentially get in Australia is that if you are good, you will get access to coaches relatively quickly because there's not a lot of people um, actually involved in the sport. So if if you're like a mm-hmm. junior kayaker, you might have, you know, you'd be one of two or 300, whereas in the para space, you would be one of maybe 15. So access to good coaching and good equipment, if you show a propensity for the sport, you can get access to that much, much faster than you're able. So it's actually, there is a bit of an advantage there in the, in the, the parasite in terms of access to support, equipment, facilities and coaching. 
Mm-hmm. Awesome. And what about for practitioners um, like sports dietitians, sports psychologists, um, sports medicine practitioners? Any specific advice that you have for um, them? I would, I would definitely um, say that it's it's another string to your bow if you if you've dealt with para athletes before, and and I think you would find it like I did. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but once you get into mm-hmm. it, then it's it's highly beneficial, and the athletes really appreciate any effort that you know a practitioner makes on their behalf and and I think it would mm-hmm. it it definitely feels like there's a difference in the reasons for doing sport that that are just beyond winning a medal so I think there's there's other benefits there that are not just about you know winning and and being a being a champion there's there's other stuff there that that mm-hmm. I think in the in the parasite particularly is much more prevalent you know, being part of something that's bigger and, and supporting the team. The Paralympic team for Australia is just awesome. It's so well run by all the, the sort of full-time staff that work for Paralympics Australia. So it's mm-hmm. it's one of the best teams that I've ever been involved in in my career, for sure. That's terrific. I guess I, w- I, I want to just ask you to reflect. You know, you, you came into, into specifically para just by an athlete coming up and asking you, whether you coach them, what what's some of the biggest things that you've learnt since you know through that process? Um, I'd say the biggest things I learned are because the people have got different impairments and disabilities, and it's almost like think of all the things that they can do rather than what they can't do. Mm-hmm. So now now I look at yep. I now now I go around looking at people, you know. <laughs> Well, I think like wondering how did you get to that point and what could you do and could you be a kayaker and mm-hmm. it's it's more about what you can do rather than what you can't do and I, and I think mm-hmm. that's a key lesson and then you know it just be prepared to be amazed at what people can do when when I think potentially that's is that even possible what they're doing and and it is and they are doing it like when you see an athlete mm-hmm. in a wheelchair doing pull ups with Weight extra weight in in the chair, it's pretty amazing, you know. Or yep. um, you see mm-hmm. athletes that are in a wheelchair or on crutches and they, and they hang weight off their body, and they do pull-ups. It's pretty amazing. And then mm. for anybody that actually is a kayaker right now, if you come and train with the Paralympic team right now, I would be surprised. Most people would be surprised at just how fast they actually travel when they're when they're doing the sport. Um, mm. relative to to able-bodied athletes, you know, we're, we're maybe five seconds forward on the 200 between the Olympic champion and the Paralympic champion. So that means your average club paddler would not be able to keep up for sure. So it's mm. it's, it's pretty impressive yeah. how fast people can can travel where obviously a, a, a definite limitation on the available muscle mass to propel the boat forward. Fantastic! Wow, that's that's really great, great sort of learnings. I think I want to finish off just with something more personal to you. What's your favourite food? <laughs> um, the easiest that my crack cocaine, if you like, is ice cream. That's for sure. I'm sorry, but <laughs> if there's ice cream in the house, it has to go, um, and it's generally it's generally inside me. And then if I if I did have to pick another <laughs> food, it's probably Indian food. I love Indian food. Curry, spices. Not super hot, but 
it has to be a bit warmer than a mm-hmm. korma. You know, I, I can uh-huh. do that. So I would say that would be my favorite food if I was picking a particular restaurant. But my crack cocaine, yeah. if you like, in terms of food, is definitely ice cream, which I'm sure most of my athletes would tell you is definitely the case, yes. <laughs> and is there any particular flavour that's a, an absolute... No, it doesn't matter. Mint chalk chip is definitely the one that gets me. <laughs> that that has to go really fast, mm-hmm. but any other flavour of ice cream, apart from coffee, that's the only one I don't really like. I don't like coffee-flavoured ice cream, but I drink coffee oh. a lot. Maybe that's why. <laughs> I think most kayak coaches do because they're up so yeah, early in the morning. Coffee is, is a vice, <laughs> I would suggest. But coffee, I assume, ironically, I don't really go for that. But if it's the only thing available, yes, mm-hmm. it will still disappear. <laughs> Fabulous. Well, Sean, thank you so much Pleasure. for your time. I really appreciate the, the the chance to really get to chat with you. Um, we've kind of known each other on and off for quite a while part through through your journey so um yeah i'm really pleased that you you came and joined us yeah no problem thank you i find it really interesting that sean has such a humble beginning to his career as a coach of para canoe but has developed such great insight into the sport i hope you enjoyed this podcast if you have any feedback or comments or people you'd like to hear from please leave that on the website And I hope that you'll join us next time when we talk to Katie Kelly, who is a paratriathlete with Usher's Syndrome.